Welcome to my hometown, filled with murder, mysteries, the paranormal, and a fair share of hauntings. This is Local Legends. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Local Legends with Lark Farley. I'm your host, Lark. A little bit about the podcast if you're new here. Every Sunday I share with you all stories that took place in my small hometown, Brown County in Indiana. These stories range from true crime to the paranormal and everywhere in between. If you'd like to share your own hometown stories, you can email me at locallegendswithlark at gmail.com. As always, all the articles used in today's episode will be linked in the description should you like to check them out for yourself. All right, let's get into it. Today's episode is one of true crime, and I wanted to redact a, a statement I made previously about this episode. I think last week at the end of the episode, I said that this was a murder case that took place in, I believe, the 70s or 80s. That's not true. I got my dates all switched up. I look at so many true crime stories every week and have so many on the back burner that I will be covering that they all kind of blend together in my mind, especially where the dates are concerned. This one is not in the 70s or 80s. It's in the late 90s. So fairly recent, to be honest. And this case is one of brutality, violence against women, And it's very brutal. I'm going to do my best to not go into detail, but I am going to give a trigger warning before we get any farther into it that this episode is intended for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. We will be discussing crime scenes, police reports. There will be depictions of violence, sexual assault, So if any of you find this to be triggering, I completely understand. Just skip this episode, and next week we'll be going in a different direction, not true crime related, and you can check that out. So let's get into it. This case is from, like I said, late 90s, or it took place in Brown County, and it is regarding the murder and rape of Kelly Eckhart. So let's start at the beginning. On September 27th, 1997, Kelly Eckhart an 18-year-old freshman at Franklin College. If you're not familiar with the area, Franklin is about a 45-minute hour drive from Brown County. It's fairly close. You know, it's a nice drive, the back roads. And so Kelly Eckhart was an 18-year-old freshman at Franklin College and had just ended her shift at Walmart, where she worked. She was a full-time student and worked at Walmart part-time. She met briefly with her boyfriend in the Walmart parking lot after her shift. Before they parted ways, Kelly driving herself home alone. This would be the last time Kelly would be seen alive. The next morning, September 28, 1997, Kelly's car was discovered halfway between her work and her home abandoned. It was just abandoned off the side of the road next to a cornfield. Her car doors were open, all of the car doors were open, the lights on, and the keys were still in the ignition. Now, it would come out later that the perpetrator of this crime had been driving behind Kelly, had hit the back of her car with his car. When Kelly got out to look at the damage that had been done to her vehicle, she was then grabbed and abducted. And they just left her car along the side of the road. Lights on, keys in ignition, all doors open. 
Four days after that, that would have been October 3rd, 1997, Kelly's partially nude body would be found dumped in a ravine alongside of a rural road in Brown County. Now, we don't know how her body was discovered. You know, in the previous cases where the bodies that were dumped in Brown County were discovered, they kind of go into the who found them, what time of day, and we don't have any of those details for this case. All we know is that her body was discovered police were called, an investigation was open, and it was discovered that Kelly had been raped and strangled by her own shoelaces and a strap cut from her overalls and then shot once in the head. After an investigation and DNA analysis was ran, it was found that the semen that had been left at the scene of the crime matched that of a man named Michael Overstreet. Now, Michael Overstreet was a local to the Brown County and Franklin area. And what's interesting is, so like, the DNA analysis came back, investigation was open, all signs led back to this man named Michael Overstreet, and once they opened an investigation against him, his brother, Scott, immediately came forward to the authorities and told them that on the night of September 27th, his brother had called him telling him that he needed help in disposing of a body. Scott came to meet his brother at a hotel, and from there he picked up his brother and Kelly in his van. They dumped Kelly into a ravine alongside a rural wooded area of Brown County, thinking that it would be weeks before she was discovered, and by then it would be too late for the investigators to ID her body. Now, for some unknown reason, Michael returned to Kelly's body. So they, you know, they dumped her. Michael returned to Kelly's body and moved it to another location. Now, according to Scott, Michael was afraid where they had initially dumped her body wasn't good enough and would easily have been discovered. Luckily, though, Kelly's body was still discovered in the new spot that Michael moved her to. And like I said, there's no record of, like, how it was found or who found it. As part of the investigation, another detail that was found was that there were many fibers on Kelly's body that matched those found in Scott's van. This was even after the fact that Michael and Scott both had thoroughly cleaned the van after they disposed of Kelly's body together which just further proved Scott's story that he had helped dispose of Kelly's body in his van with his brother. There were even eyewitnesses that came forward and could positively identify Michael as having been near the site where Kelly's body was discovered. So it's interesting, he like hung around the area. Well, first of all, he like moved her. He moved her body from where it was initially dumped and then kept coming back to the area the days leading up to it being discovered, her body being discovered. On November 6, 1997, police took Michael into custody for the murder of Kelly, and the murder charge would be officially filed on November 10th. Once Michael was brought into the police, they the police received hundreds of tips from callers, all implicating Michael as having been the murderer. The biggest tip, the one that would officially seal Michael's conviction, was from his own brother, Scott. I imagine that Scott came forward to give a story in details to get a lesser charge. 
Because, I mean, like, he was a, he was an associate to murder. He helped his brother dispose of Kelly's body. He knew what happened to Kelly. According to police, Scott's official statement is as follows. Scott met his brother early in the evening of September 27, 1997, and Michael had told him that he had, and I quote, grabbed this girl. The brothers then drove to Camp Atterbury. Does that place sound familiar? Should. Where Scott left his brother and the girl. So at this time, in this story that Scott is giving, it is apparent that, seemingly apparent, I guess, that according to Scott, when Scott went to the location where he picked up his brother and Kelly and dropped them off near Camp Atterbury, Kelly was still alive. Several of Michael's belongings would be found at that location later on in the investigation, which further proves Scott's story. That that did, in fact, happen. The prosecutor overseeing the trial would recommend seeking the death penalty if Michael was found guilty, and that recommendation was passed. So they get Scott's story. They get all the eyewitnesses' story. Everything's pointing to Michael. The prosecutor goes, you know what? We want to seek the death penalty, and then whoever's ever overseeing the case goes, we agree. If Michael was found guilty, he gets the death penalty. The charges against Michael were rape, criminal deviate conduct, confinement, and felony murder. The chief deputy prosecutor, Brad Cooper, stated that, and this is a direct quote, that guy was probably on his way to being a serial killer, talking about Michael, who just happened to get caught the first time, said Cooper. He was just one evil dude. Which, I mean, I agree. Although, what's to say that this wasn't his first time? Like, how do they know that? You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a particularly brutal case. And I can't imagine that... I don't know. Just the, the specifics of this case. I mean, he strangled her with her own overalls, raped, and shot her. Abducted her. I don't know if I could guess that this is his first time. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's probably thought about this for a really long time. Wants to say this was his first. It could have been his second. Especially when you consider that there was a case eerily similar to Kelly's, where someone, it was like in the, this one was in fact in the late 70s. I was literally just reading about it. Uh, it, it took place in the same area near Franklin, uh, between Franklin and Brown County, and this woman was strangled by her own shoelaces and left in a cornfield. The car abandoned. So I'm going to cover that case and just keep this in the back of your head because I don't know. It's just like it's so odd that there would be like two separate supposed serial killers moving at the same time, both with the thing of like strangling women with their own shoelaces. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, I do agree. I mean, this guy would probably have continued his murder spree had he not been caught. Lucky for us, he was sloppy which made it all the more easier to catch him. So the trial began on May 1st, 2000, and on May 13th, 2000, the jury found Michael to be guilty of all charges, and on July 31st, the judge would sentence him to Indiana's death row to await lethal injection. Michael had a history of serious mental illness, and this came out in the court, of course, in the trial, including demonic hallucinations, which, according to him, this voice, this demonic voice, told him to do terrible things to other people. 
He told his parents about the voices as a small child, but they didn't believe him, refused to help him, and physically abused him. Once he would tell them of what he was, like, hearing, like, the voices. They're like, I'll just beat it out of you. Which is terrible. Michael signed up for the Marines, but would be discharged three months later due to his mental illness. While incarcerated, Michael would be diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and Michael, at the time of the rape and murder of Kelly, was married and had four children. His prior criminal record was pretty much clean with only a few misdemeanor charges. It is said that while being incarcerated, Michael has been a model prisoner. Michael was supposed to be executed on May 30th, 2008. However, that would not happen as several psychiatrists and Michael's attorney would fight against Michael's execution, stating that Michael's mental capacity had declined to where he could not understand the sentence or its implications. So basically, they're fighting to be like, he's not mentally competent enough to understand what's happening. So if you sentence him to death, he has no idea what's going on. On July 6, 2017, the judge would rule that Michael was not fit to be on death row due to his mental incompetence. So even though that happened on July 6, where the judge is like, you know, you're mentally incompetent, you can't be on death row, that's not to say that Michael won't ever be executed because the state could come back at any point, at any time, to prove that Michael is in fact competent, in which case Michael would be put back on death row and executed. Kelly's death and the trial left an impression on Indiana courtrooms because in 2002, Kelly's parents helped pass Kelly's Law, which is a law that allows family members of a victim to give impact statements at the sentencing hearings. Now, before this law was passed, the victim's families could not give any form of impact statements at the hearings. So basically what an impact is, is like, when the victim and the victim's family can come forward to, like, talk about the effects of that crime against themselves, you know, and, like, how they're feeling and how they feel towards the perpetrator of the crime. Obviously, Kelly's parents were distraught. Can you even begin to imagine how they were feeling knowing what happened to their daughter? So they wanted to, like, get out their emotions and, like, talk to Michael and be like, you did this to our daughter. Like, you have, you've ruined you know, our lives, and this is how we're being affected by it, and also you're just a piece of absolute garbage, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's very cathartic for victims and victims' families to be able to have that ability to give those statements in court. Before the passing in 2002 of Kelly's Law, at least in Indiana, victims and victims' families could not give those statements. So while Kelly's Law has no real impact on the criminal prosecution part of the, the trial, it can help the families to find closure. Now, Kelly's legacy also lives on at the Franklin College campus, where there are several trees are planted in her honor, a scholarship is named after her, as well as plaques placed commemorating her memory. And so I'm going to close this episode in this case with a direct quote and comment from Connie Sutton, which is Kelly's mother. She says, People have to remember what happened to her, so it doesn't happen to them. Hopefully it reminds people to be careful then not everybody out there is good. If you're out in the middle of nowhere and it's dark and somebody tries to stop you, I don't care if he has a flashlight, put your flashers on to acknowledge that you see him and go somewhere where you feel safe. 
like I said, this case is a brutal one. It's a particularly violent one, and it's just so disheartening and so sad. Kelly had so much of a future, you know, and, like, she had things that she wanted to do with her life, dreams, and just wanted to live, you know, and, like, this Michael guy took her life from her, took away her ability to have any form of future. And, like, can you imagine, like, the lasting effects this has on Kelly's family, too, and, like, her friends and everyone that ever knew her? It's just so sad. These, I mean, these stories, you just read about them over and over and over and over and over again. All this violence against women. These men who just feel like they can get away with killing women. It's just, it's really disgusting and sad and also just really scary, you know? So be careful out there and keep Connie's words in your mind. Be careful when you're by yourself. If someone hits you on purpose from behind, do not get out of your car. Call the police. Lock all your doors. Do not get out of your vehicle. And honestly, err on the side of caution at all times. Do not trust anybody but yourself. And be safe. Be safe. And don't trust strangers. And just, yeah, take care of yourself. But that was today's story. It's a sad, horrible one. But at least there is that silver lining in that Kelly's family passed Kelly's law, helping hundreds, thousands of future victims and their families. Kelly's family did get a form of closure in that Kelly's case was closed. You know, they they know who the perpetrator of that crime is, so they have closure there. You know, it's not an unsolved case. And, you know, Michael's going to spend every single day of his remaining life in jail, rotting in a jail cell, trapped in his own mind. But yeah, so that's today's case. I didn't want to give it, you know, make it too long. Because again, it was very brutal and graphic and violent. So be careful out there, stay hydrated, take care of yourself. If true crime's not your thing, next week join us. We're doing another back in time episode. I really love those. I have fun with those. It's funny, you know, it's like a little time capsule of what was going on. So next week's will be another back to the past episode. We're going to be talking about, there's, so there's this headline in Br- the Brown County Democrat where a preacher from a local church in Brown County goes on a tirade against uh, the devil in dancing. So that should be fun. We're going to break it all down, see what all the fuss is about. And yeah, devil in dancing. Who knew? So join me next week where we'll be talking about that. In the meantime, take care of yourself. Stay safe. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye.